pray and then we'll get into our text today. Father, we thank you that you are greater. You are greater than all. And we love to sing how great thou art. You've captured our hearts. We have seen you through the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. We understand who you are. He is the exact representation. He emulates your glory perfectly and we understand you now through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, thank you that you are a great God and allow us to praise you and sing to you as we have this morning. We thank you for your word. You have not let us, uh, let us uh, not know who you are. We are not ignorant of your truths, Lord. You've left your manual, the perfect word of God, inspired every jot and tittle of it so that we would know who you are. God, cause us to want to know your word, to, to listen to it here today, but not just here, but on Monday, read it ourselves, apply it to our lives and live it out. What a great blessing that is, Father. Lord, we thank you for all those that are gathered here today and first service as well. Thank you for the many who watch online, Lord, that are still home and not able to come. Father, I pray for those who are struggling with illnesses. Lord, I know of some that are are struggling. God, please grant them mercy and health, Lord. Others are preparing for upcoming surgeries, Lord. Keep them healthy and cause uh, surgeons to be guided by your hand, Lord, as they go through those. Father, we thank you for our missionaries scattered around the world. Continue to give them favor, Lord. Give them opportunity in these difficult times to share the hope of glory. So many are hopeless out there, Lord. Their lives uh, are destroyed in a sense, Lord. They have no direction, Lord. Oh, we pray that your hope of the gospel would come pour into their lives. Lord, thank you for our time together. Let us be attentive to the word of God. Speak to us now through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 18 through 20. Listen to the word. You shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns, which the Lord God is giving you according to your tribes, and you shall judge the people with righteousness. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Justice, and only justice, you shall pursue, that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. That is a statement right out of the law. And that is what the Hebrews, the Jewish court system, based their whole system upon. And throughout Israel's histories, they maintained a strong court of justice. And by the time Jesus comes along, as we see in this passage today, in the first century, they had developed a sophisticated system. In fact, this system was based on the law of God. They had prided themselves on, on that their court system was full of justice. It was fair throughout its system. They had established local councils and courts and they provided legal aid to all of their communities and then there's the supreme court of israel that was located in jerusalem they met every day of the week except the sabbath and on holy days they were known as what was called the great sanhedrin they consisted of 71 members and included high priests and representatives, representatives from former chief priests and elders and scribes, there was no greater Jewish judicial court than the Sanhedrin. Even the Romans adjusted their court system after they took the Jews into captivity because of the example of their own court. But on, based on Old Testament principles, their court system was protected through several procedures. And here's a way the Jews set up their court. Trials were only to be public. They were not ever hidden behind doors. They were held during daylight hours. There was to be adequate opportunity to make a defense. All charges had to be supported and witnessed by two legitimate individuals. Bearing false witness was taken very seriously and punished gravely. If a person was falsely accused of a crime, the penalty of that crime was put on the false accuser. If death penalty was mandated, 
the victims were to cast the first stone. In doing so, that meant they had a clear conscience and they stood behind their testimony and they backed it up with actions. Also in capital punishment cases, the Jewish law mandated a full daytime trial with a full day between verdict and punishment. This was their own law. Members of the court were required to fast, reflect soberly about the verdict they delivered. The delay allowed for further evidence and further witness to be made possible. Because of this, the Jewish court system was known for a very merciful and very fair system until they got to Jesus. Everything changed. Now this great Sanhedrin court disregarded nearly every one of their own statutes to put Jesus Christ to death. Their depravity had got the best of them. Their jealousy, their longing for power and greed caused them to break their own laws that they had set up. And although most of these men are guilty and are waiting eternal punishment, God used what we're going to study today, this heinous crime, this heinous injustice, to bring about the sacrificial, substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We marvel at this. We marvel that God would use such a difficult situation to bring about our salvation. Jesus Christ, I want to get this across to you, is both our eternal salvation and our reason for living today. Let me share just one verse before we get into our text. And you know this passage, just listen to it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Hmm. It's a hard verse to swallow at times, isn't it? For the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross, despising the shame. All the illegal activity, all the disgusting things that they did to the Lord Jesus Christ, he endured it joyfully. You say, well, how? how? Where, where's the joy in that? Well, the rest of the verse tells us that he sat down at the right hand of the, Father of God, uh, the Father of God on the throne. And so what that says to us is that he knew that this was the plan of God. He found joy in fulfilling what God asked him to do. And when he had fulfilled all of this, that we're going to look at just the portion we're going to look at today, he had joy in it to rescue you, to rescue me. I stand amazed at that, and especially as I've studied this passage in depthly this week, I thought, oh Lord, if somebody spit in my face, how could I count that as joy? Let's see how our Lord reacts. Four thoughts this morning. Number one, a power-seeking family in the beginning of an illegal trial. A power-seeking family in the beginning of an illegal trial. Look at verse 53 and 54 with me. They led Jesus away to the high priests and all the chief priests and the elders and scribes gathered together. And Peter had followed at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priests and was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the, at the fire. Thirty years later, Paul writes the great verse, a great section inspired by the Spirit of God in Philippians chapter 2. He says, do nothing out of selfish or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. You remember Paul's history. He doubtlessly has family possibly involved in this Sanhedrin or, or certainly involved in the role of the Pharisees. He was a Pharisee of Pharisee, he called himself. He knew the way they operated. He would have been just like them if it was not for the grace of God. Paul's view of what happened to Jesus Christ had totally changed. He had seen the greed and the passion that these men wanted. How they would reject the law of God in order to put someone to death. And he writes, do nothing out of selfish or, or vain conceit, your Bible might say. But always with humility. And this is totally missing in the, in the mark of these so-called religious leaders. As you notice the text and the trial begins, and I Always, I've been working through this suffering servant, and this is the trial of the suffering servant, kind of a theme going through that. We see this trial begin with Jesus' appearance before the Jewish authorities. 
His first appearance is before Annas. It's not recorded in Mark. We're going to see this in a minute. It's recorded in John 18. From there, he's moved to be arraigned by Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin. That's recorded in Matthew 26 and in here in our text. And then finally, he's formally condemned by the Sanhedrin in Caiaphas. And you see that in Mark chapter 15. You see that also in Matthew 27 and Luke 22. Now notice the phrase in verse 53. They led him away to the high priest. John 18, 12 says this Roman cohort and this temple police bound the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, just, we know Jesus, don't we? This is a man who healed and cared for people and fed them and, and was no threat uh, humanly to someone else. And yet we find our Lord in John 18 bound and, and led off to the high priest. Well, it's important that we understand who he's being led to and, and why he was bound. This was a powerful family. This was a family that loved authority. Annas was one of, he was the high priest in the previous years. And he was the father-in-law of the Caiaphas. You see where this is going. Caiaphas was, who was not named in Mark, was the official high priest during this time, during this court session, during this year. And of course, he's the son of Annas. These two were working in close cooperation to condemn Jesus, weren't they? They wanted to pass judgment on him. The, uh, history tells us that from one time or another that Annas had five sons and they all ruled in this position. They kept this in their family. They kept the authority, the finance, the power within this prominent family. And they also would have been hit hard by Jesus' cleansing of the temple, so they had an ax to grind. But this family, these families lived in close proximity. As Jesus goes in this court, most likely, Josephus and others report about this, that inside that courtyard were probably several families. Annas' house was probably in there, and Caiaphas is there. They shared a, a common courtyard. They had power and money and land. They bought up vineyards and, and orchards, and, and they, they made money off of all those things, and they kept it in the family. You didn't marry outside the family. See, Paul knew this. He knew how wicked they were. These families kept that close. Acts chapter four, look with me real quick. I wanna show you, this does not change for quite some time. Acts chapter four, um, this is, uh, let me give you some context here. John and Peter have been arrested for, for preaching the gospel and healing the man at the portico, the gate of the temple. And they've been put in prison and, and they've been brought out of prison but numbers of people have came to know Christ through their, their preaching and, and, and here these followers of Jesus are at it again and, and there's such anger and hatred towards the name of Christ and certainly they hate the Lord Jesus Christ. But look at verse four. But many of those who had heard the message believed and the number of these men came about to be about 5,000. Now on the next day, the rulers and elders and the scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. Remember I said they met every day except the Sabbath and, and the high holy days. Then look at what here, who it records. This is now after the death of Christ. This is the, after the birth of the church. Annas, the high priest, was there. Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who are of the high priestly descent. Now John and Alexander are believed to be, guess what? The sons of Caiaphas. Oh, this is power and authority. They're holding on to this. They're, you can't imagine how much authority and power and money ran through this family. And Jesus was in the way. Now all this has been prophesied by the Lord Jesus Christ. He said back in Mark 8, 31, he said, um, look, I am going to suffer at the hands of evil men. I will be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and they will kill me and I will be raised on the third day. He's been prophesying that. And again, that's exactly what we see. Look at verse 53. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. So this, this passage historically documents that there's an illegal assembly, a nocturnal assembly of this Sanhedrin. He says, how, how do you know that? Well, remember our passage. They, they, the Bible says that they, just before midnight, Jesus had gathered, he'd finished praying, and there he was arrested. So here this court system that based itself on justice now has an illegal nighttime court session going on. Once Jesus was arrested, the high priest doubtlessly sent messengers 
and summoned the members of this prestigious court. Remember, they knew it was happening. They knew they had Jesus, Judas to go betray him. So doubtlessly said, hey, if this goes down, be ready. And so these messengers doubtlessly went out. And as Jesus is with Annas, they are now assembling. Now, it's important to understand that Jesus was detained with Annas until the members arrived. And, and the goal is to create a false evidence, to manufacture a case against him. And obviously, the question directed at Jesus were never intended to uncover truth because he's perfect, right? But they're setting a trap for him. They want him to incriminate himself. I want you to look at John chapter 18 because the meeting with Annas is not recorded in Mark, but it is recorded in John, and I want you to see this. This is an important passage, verse 19. John chapter 18, verse 19. The Bible reads this way. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. This is Annas now. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I've spoken nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I have spoken to them. They know what I said. And when he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, rightly, why do you strike me? So Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas and the high priest. I want you to see that because you're going to see a mistreatment of Jesus with Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. But it began before that. First of all, he's bound like a criminal. Now he's in, in front of Annas in a very private, a private kind of trial, which is, would, would have been completely illegal. And there he is already being struck as a criminal. Now, again, Annas certainly hated Jesus, particularly for the cleansing of the temples. But Annas found, notice he finds nothing. In Mark chapter 18, he finds nothing to charge Jesus with. And he should have released him. He should have released him at that point. But instead, under the cover of darkness, he sends him to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin for the next attempt to charge him. Now, by this time, the council is gathered, and they're they're now in the home of Caiaphas, most likely. But the scene shifts in verse 54 to remind us of his disciples. Look at verse 54. Here comes Peter. Peter had followed at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. After Peter's initial abandonment, you remember that last week, he fled like all of them did, he seems to circle back around and he follows Jesus from afar. I love this about Peter. I think he loved his Messiah. I think he loved his master. And I think he was drawn to him, but but from a distance. Matthew 26, verse 58 says that Peter was concerned to see the outcome. That's an interesting statement. It uses the word teleos, which we would often translate outcome or end. He wanted to see how this was going to play out. Maybe, maybe Peter thought he's going to call those 12 legions of angels. Maybe Peter thought, well, man, he's going to go get them. Uh, Maybe, maybe he would just disappear like he had done before in Nazareth and just move right out of their existence and they wouldn't know. Maybe he would defend himself. Peter didn't know, but he wanted to be there. And I think that's a great difference between Peter and Judas. Peter, though, fled. That was his first failing in in the temptation. But yet he has a longing to be with Jesus. He wants to see him. He wants to see how this is going to work out. Judas had no recourse. He just hung himself. Peter wants to be there. Notice what happened. The Bible says right into the court of the high priest. So Peter is following him, and he's putting himself into an actually very unique and dangerous position. Uh, The Greek syntax of the structure of the sentence gives you the idea of, of this is intense. He, he moves kind of right into the lion's den in a sense. You could actually translate it something like this, right, even right into the courtyard. He's following, but he goes right into the courtyard. John, John 18 kind of alludes to the fact that the apostle John allowed him, because of his relationship with the high priest of some sort, gets him into that courtyard. Now, after the Roman soldiers would have delivered Jesus to that courtyard, they would have returned back to their fort, back to their barracks. They would have gone. But not the soldiers, not, not, I mean, not the temple police. 
They're hanging around. And notice the Bible says that Peter was sitting with them. In fact, he's right in the midst of them. And and notice there's a fire going. He's warming himself by a fire. So Jerusalem sits about 2,500 feet above um, sea level. And in the springtime like this would have been, you have these cool nights. And so the fire is attracting people to it. But it's attracting Peter, and this is going to be a problem. That fire now is illuminating his face, and somebody's going to recognize him. And that narrative gets picked up in verse 66. We'll see that next week. But I want you to understand, this trial now is begun. It started with Annas. Jesus is already beaten up by them. And he's moved on now to the high priest, Caiaphas. But Peter is watching. We'll see next week that there's an eyesight between Jesus and Peter during this time. It's quite moving. Let's look at our second thought. Godless religious leaders and the sinless son of God. Godless religious leaders and the sinless son of God. Now I put those terms together. They don't really fit. Godless religious leaders. That's not a term that should fit, but that's exactly the description of these men. They were godless. They had no care of God's plan. The last thing they wanted was Jesus, the king of the Jews, to show up and remove their authority. They were godless men, but yet they were the so-called religious leaders of the people. When Annas strikes out, right, he tries to incriminate Jesus in some way. He gives up and he sends him over to Caiaphas, and that's where we pick this up. And they're trying to find this evidence to put Jesus to death. Now, Clearly, this is a predetermined goal. They, they came into this trial with trying to kill him. And that's a problem. These, this unofficial, illegal, nocturnal trial, which was dominated by this high priest family, now has turned into a grand jury investigation. <laughs> They're way outside their jurisdiction in this. Notice verse 55 and verse 56. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimonies against him, but their testimonies, but the testimony was inconsistent. Now, according to the Jewish law, the Sanhedrin was not permitted to initiate charges. They could only investigate and adjudicate the cases that were presented to them. However, in this trial, the members of this council are illegally acting as prosecutors. They made themselves prosecutors of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, way outside their jurisdiction. But notice they have a problem. Verse 55, they were unable to find any. Verse 56, their testimonies were not consistent. See, the picture of an ongoing effort to find witnesses against Jesus to, to support some allegation was not working. And, and think about this. It's not easy to, conv- to convict, uh, convict a perfect man. <laughs> How are you going to convict him? It has to be based on deceit. There's been a lot of people who have probably gone to jail for crimes they didn't commit. But the biggest thing that's difference between them and Jesus is he was innocent of all sin. I have spoke with men who have gone to jail and visit them and said, I didn't do this, but man, I did a whole bunch of other things. That was not the case with Jesus. And you think about this, and I thought about this week, I thought, they're trying to conv- convict the impeccable Lord Jesus Christ. And they were failing miserable. Look at verses 57 and 58. And even down through 59, some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build up another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimonies consistent. Well, instead of proving Jesus as guilty, they contradicted their stories. And it just highlights his innocence in this blatant, godless attack of these accusers. Uh, But notice, eventually they found two willing liars, right, who somehow twisted the words of the Lord Jesus that took place three years ago. Three years ago, John chapter 2, when he said this. And they claimed that Jesus threatened to destroy their temple, which was their idol. So now he's really stepping on toes. And, of course, they don't even get that right because Jesus was speaking of his body. Now, the reason they can't see that is they're lost, 
when you do not love God, when you do not love God through the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have extreme love of self and power, and you want to please your flesh, you are blind to who Jesus is. The world is blind to who Jesus is. A few weeks ago, Pastor Brian Sheely was preaching on Ephesians. And we were away, but I was listening to that sermon while it was going. And he got to chapter four and he began to, sp- to speak about the callousness of men and, and just the depravity of men. Uh, the verse in verse 19, Ephesians four nineteen says, they became callous and having given themselves over to sensuality, the practice of every kind of impurity, which is greediness. But then it said this, there's a conjunction there. Verse 20, but you did not learn Christ this way. You did not learn Christ this way. And then verse 21, if indeed you have heard him. You know these men never heard Jesus? Oh, they heard him talk outwardly. Their goals were not to listen. Their goals were to beat him. You ever, you ever know why you don't probably get the names of people? So many people come up and say, man, I can't remember anybody's name. You know why often that is? Because we've already been thinking about what we're gonna say and we don't catch what they're talking about. And this is what these men did. They had no concern of what Jesus was gonna say. They had other goals, they had other alternatives. They wanted to crush him, put him down, trap him, show him to be a fraud. So when he spoke, they did not listen to him. The difference between a Christian is this. The verse says, if indeed you have heard him. If you're a believer in this room, you heard Jesus. You heard him through his word. You heard that what he accomplished on the cross, you heard what he did for you. God's word has spoken and you've heard it. They didn't hear him. The next phrase in that sentence in Ephesians 4, 21 says, and have been taught in him. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Taught in Christ. You know, every one of us in this room who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are positioned in Christ. The Father only looks at us in Son, So in that son, sitting in him, positioned in him for all of eternity, now count it righteous in Christ, we hear the instruction of our great Lord Jesus Christ. Not these men. Their goal was not to hear from Jesus or be taught from Jesus. Their goal was to destroy him. Their goal was self-motivation. And then finally it says this in that last verse, it says, just as truth is in Jesus... These men had no idea what truth was. They had no idea that Jesus was the way and the truth. Not just the life and the way, but he's the truth. There was no other way to get to the Father except through him. They didn't see that. They didn't know that. They believed in their own goodness. And they find themselves soon condemned before this same Savior. All these allegations brought against him were full of inconsistencies, verse 59 says. And listen, that night at the house of Caiaphas, in clear violation to their own law, to the Mosaic law, to the great Sanhedrin, and what they had set up, they began to devise a case against Jesus on testimonies that were were not based in truth. But that all began to fail. Now listen, Jesus is impeccable. I love that word. You hear me use it a lot. It's a theological term. It means he is without sin, you can, you can look at him from the left to the right, from the bottom, from the top. You can come at him in every angle and you will never find sin in him. And because of Jesus' impeccability, there could be no true testimony ever against him. And yet they tried. I love the phrase, he knew no sin. He knew no sin. You know, you and I can't say that. We can in Christ. We're forgiven of all of our sins as we sang today. But He knew no sin, and yet they kept trying. One verse that popped out of me, and just something to jot down here and look at later, was Romans chapter 8. Because I think about these men versus this impeccability of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 6 says this, For the mind set on the flesh is death. And certainly he's talking about our unsaved, deprived, uh, pre-salvation state, right? Left to our flesh, we're dead men and women, aren't we? But it's interesting when you apply this to the situation here, the mindset on the flesh is death. The mind of these men, this great Sanhedrin, these 71 men who are the, had the religious care of the nation, their minds were set on flesh, and guess what comes from it? Death. 
Their goal was to kill Jesus. But the problem was, flesh was gonna kill them. They were gonna die. The verse goes on to say, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. That was our Lord. He was being led by the spirit of God. He was going through all of this for our life and for our peace. The verse goes on, verse seven, chapter eight of Romans. Because of the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. These men were hostile towards God. God incarnate is sitting before them. The one that they have never seen, the one they wouldn't even speak his name out loud, is sitting in front of them and they show their hostility of God because their mind is set on the flesh. And the Bible says, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. You go, why can these men who are the great keepers of the law of God, why would they break a command of don't commit murder? Because their minds are set on the flesh. They can't see the law of God. It's all about producing what they want. And the Bible goes on to say, for they are not even able to do so. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And listen, brothers and sisters. Outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of our best efforts bring death. All of our best efforts bring death. Our minds now as Christians are set on the things of the Spirit. Life and peace in Christ. The joy and the fruit of the Spirit that comes with that. These men were certainly had their minds set on the flesh. Third thought. The silent lamb speaks and seals his death. The silent lamb speaks and seals his death. Look at verse 60 with me and part of 61. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Well, after several failed attempts to manufacture a case against Jesus, two witnesses come forward claiming that Jesus threatened to destroy their beloved temple. This was their idol. And, and Caiaphas, he, it's all he needed. He jumps on this opportunity. But of course, Jesus remains silent. He's innocent. He, he's fulfilling the scriptures. Isaiah 53, 7 says he was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb led to slaughter, and like sheep that is silent before his shearers, so did Jesus not open his mouth. So here he is, and Caiaphas is now raging. And I want you to think about Jesus' silence before we see what he actually says. Jesus' silence was a mark of control. Remember, the fruit of the Spirit, one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. I want you to think through this. He displays his integrity, his innocence, and a beautiful calmness and trust in his Father as he sits there being unjustly accused. Now think about yourself for a minute. Go down just some of the things we know in this text. Falsely accused, do you sit there and be quiet? How many of you can do that? Mm. Spouse? Son or daughter? Neighbor, co-worker, pick, pick whoever you want. Comes and accuses you unjustly. You're innocent of the cause. <laughs> How many of us would sit there and not say anything? Oh, maybe you wouldn't say something back to their face, but you might post something. See, what he is showing is his absolute control of everything. He's showing his integrity. See, Jesus refused to give this illegal trial any appearance of legitimacy. In fact, his silence was a massive contrast to their blowhard condemning him in an illegal way. He's contrasting their wickedness. And with all their wicked and evil and pure hatred they had for Jesus, all manifest in an illegal trial, the condemnation for the unjust was truly a fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. He was to take this for our sake. He was to have hostilities against him. And listen, for the Christian, we see the evil abuse. We look at this and we go, man, I don't like this. When I read this, my heart hurts. I, I weep on, uh, at my desk when I read this because I love my Lord so much. I see that side. But for the Christian, here's the difference of a, an unsaved person and a Christian. An unsaved per person may go, oh, this is social injustice. This is, this is, not, this is not what should have been done. Look, look, this isn't right. 
But not the Christian. The Christian sees both sides of it. We say, yes, our Lord was innocent. He was impeccable. This should have never been done to him. But we flip the coin around and we go, God did this for our salvation. He had to go through this. That's amazing. That's a mark of Christianity. That you and I can see that this had to be done. This had to be committed to our Lord Jesus Christ who lived in perfect righteousness, who committed no sins, was unjustly tried for our sin. We understand these things. And, and even though their enemies were so wicked, Peter got a hold of this and in the birth of the church in Acts chapter two, verse 23 says, this man, speaking of Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. Well, you put him to death by the hands of godly men. See, Christians realize, I hate this. This is so unfair. They should never have done this to my Savior. Flip the coin. It had to be done to save me. That's the beauty. That's the beauty of knowing Jesus Christ and believing the word. Look at the rest of verse 61. Again, the high priest was questioning him, saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Notice the are you. It's a, Greek shows this as a con- Contentious tone to it. He's not seeking truth. He's trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself here. Matthew 26, 63 records that the answer was required for Jesus to, to answer it. He was under oath, and Caiaphas here is demanding an answer. Notice the terms that he chooses, and there's a reason for it. He says, are you the Christ? Well, he recalls that Jesus had claimed to be the Messiah, the sent one. And so he's questioning him on that. And then he uses another phrase, the son of the blessed one. And this points to the claim of Jesus' deity and equality of the father. Uh, the title is only used here. And it's interesting that the Jewish leaders use this phrase. And there's a reason why. They said son of the blessed one because you know what? They wouldn't use the word God, Yahweh, in, in public. They wouldn't say it publicly. And so this is the only term this is used. But... <laughs> Jesus unites these two terms in a way to describe himself. They're trying to use it to to bring judgment upon him. Jesus unites these terms. Look at verse 62. And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Well, finally the Lamb speaks. (laughs) And oh, does he speak. Oh, brothers and sisters, that first phrase in there in verse 62 and it says Jesus said I am and I think in your Bibles you'll find maybe a semicolon or something there and what the text is trying to do is help you pause there help you pause I am that's a great statement that's Exodus 3.14 I am I am the resurrection I am the door I am the shepherd I am those things I am it's a statement of equality with the father that itself would have drove them crazy but he doesn't he goes beyond that right He makes this clear, absolute affirmation and states that he is both the Messiah and the Son of God. And since Jesus was under oath to tell the truth, he made a plain declaration of his nature and status. I am, and I'm coming back. It's quite a statement. And doubtlessly, Jesus knew when he spoke here, this sealed his death. Jesus had to know that. Because remaining silent would have been in effect a denial of his person and his messianic ministry. So to affirm that he was both the son of God and the Messiah, then he makes a statement after he says, I am, he says, you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Ooh, this would have frustrated him. Of course, the verses would have clopped in their mind. They would have instantly thought of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where Daniel's great prophecy says, I continue to look into the night vision, and behold, the clouds of heaven, in the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. There's an equality between him and the agents of days. He's coming in the clouds. They're going, he's making himself equal with God right in our presence again. They also would have thought of, possibly Psalms 1 where Jesus says look the, uh, the Bible says the Lord says I will make my Lord to sit at my right hand until his enemies are a footstool for your feet and here now th- this is coming to mind they know these passages and Jesus is saying I'm not only the son of God I'm not only the Messiah but I'm your judge oh this would have just overwhelmed them 
See, he's, listen, Jesus is in full consciousness. He knows who he is. He knows the moment he's in. He's standing like a felon before the high priest, but he is, he is not holding back. And look, friend, if you're here and you don't know who Jesus Christ is, he, he, he has to be who he says he is, or he is the biggest imposter ever to walk on the planet. He knew calling himself into equality with God would have been considered blasphemy. And it sealed his death. But that's who he was. And Jesus, when he spoke, who spoke very few words in this trial, he spoke those words. One other passage just before I leave this and go to our last point. I want you to look at Acts chapter 7. Because the apostles and the early church, they know this truth. And when you're saved, you know who Jesus is. You know he's God. And you know he's going to return. And you know he sits at the right hand of the Father. You know all that. You believe all that. Acts chapter 7, of course, is the great sermon of, of Stephen. <laughs> he begins to teach the leaders of Israel their own history. He seems to know it better than they do. He begins to show that they were godless. They're coming from godless people who rejected God. And I want to pick it up in verse 51 because this wasn't helpful to Stephen's life expectancy. He says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. <laughs> uh, that didn't, they were already reaching for stones there. And ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. You're in a long line of murderers, <laughs> is what he's saying. Which of the prophets, verse 52, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. Now it's turning back to Christ. Whose betrayers and murderers you now have become. Uh-oh. It's getting hot in the kitchen. Look at verse 53. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. And now when they heard, us, they were, heard this, they were cut to the quick. And they began to gnash their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he, Stephen, gazes intently into heaven and saw the glory of God, uh-oh, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said out loud, behold, I see the heavens opening up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Oh, they thought they were done with this. And there it is again just what Jesus had said. Now Stephen reports this in his last moments as he stares and God opens heaven and he sees what Jesus promised the rest of us will see someday. And again, you know the rest of the story. They begin to pelt him with rocks and kill him. Let's get to our last thought. Number four, when, God, when the godless condemn the innocent. When the godless condemn the innocent. Well, back in our text, look at verse 63 with me. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? Oh, look, there's no doubt Caiaphas and the other religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus had said. They knew he was making himself equal with the Father. But tearing of the clothes, was a, a, it was a manufactured expression of horror of what Jesus said. They, this is manufactured. You say, well, Scott, why? Why is it? Because, because this is exactly what they wanted See, they knew they had no evidence. They knew they had no grounds to put him to death. But now he has, in their eyes, blasphemed God deserving of death. Notice they say, he's, uh, Caiaphas says in verse 63, what further need do we have of witnesses? Well, this is an expression of relief. <laughs> They're going, we, we escaped this embarrassing situation because our, false, our witnesses were false. They couldn't collaborate stories. And now the prisoner has incriminated himself. He's called himself God. We got him. We're not going to be embarrassed by this, you know, dog and pony show we just put on. We got him now. And that's why he makes that statement. What further need do we have of witnesses? They were glad to get rid of that. That was a relief to them. Look at verse 64. You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Well, the Old Testament had identified that blasphemy was a defiant irreverence towards God. 
And on top of that, the one who blasphemed the name of the Lord deserved death, according to Leviticus 24. Now, our Lord's words here were not blaspheming because he was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. He was the one sent from heaven. He was doing what the Father does. Whatever the Father does, I do also. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. All these claims of his deity were true. In reality, it was Caiaphas and the religious leaders who were blaspheming him. Dr. Luke says that in Luke twenty-two sixty-five. He says, they were all saying many things against him, blaspheming him. Luke records that it's just the opposite. Now remember, this Jewish court was known for the most just court in all of civilized society. And here in verse 64, that justice is abandoned. Notice they say, all condemning him to be deserving of death. Again, Matthew records their, their exact words. He says, he deserves death. And then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists and others slapped him. Well, look, on normal situations or on normal circumstances of this Sanhedrin court, they would have followed a strict protocol. There was a process. One vote at a time would be cast, starting with the younger to the older. And you go, why did they do that? Because they didn't want the older ones to influence the younger ones. That was the way they did it. The votes would have been carefully calculated by a scribe. Long before the sentence would be handed down, a full day would have been allowed for further testimony, and that's the last thing they wanted. Can you imagine the two blind men that Jesus healed on the way to Jerusalem show up in that court? How about Lazarus? (laughs) Oh, great. How are we going to compete with a dead guy? They don't want any of that. They want no hosannas and singers. They want no deaf that can hear, no blind that can see, no people raised from dead, no children given back to their parents. They don't want any of that, so they rush this trial because it would be devastating to their case. And they knew it. But here on this illegal nighttime trial, the council turns to this mob mentality to reach this verdict. They all voice together, he's guilty, kill him. Oh, Luke 26, or excuse me, 23, verse 50 says that Joseph of Arimathea did not agree with them. But most of them fell into this mob mentality. But deception did not stop there. The Sanhedrin needed help. Under Roman rule, they could not execute somebody, so they've got to get help. They can't put Jesus to death on their own. So later that morning, we'll see this coming up, They brought Jesus to Pilate and they fabricated this allocations that Jesus was starting some kind of insurrection against them. Luke records this, says, we found this man misleading the nation, choosing words to maybe associate him with like the role of Barabbas. He was also forbidding to pay taxes. He was telling people not to pay taxes. You see the lies, there's three of them in this text. And then he made himself out to be king and oh, there's no king but Caesar. So they need Rome. And so the lies and the deception just continue all the way to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. You think, well, this is ugly. Well, it gets worse. Look at verse 65. So they began to spit at him, to blindfold him, and to beat him with their fist, and say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Well, in their anger and hatred, they revealed their true hearts, didn't they? As the Supreme Court of Israel spirals into chaos, physical abuse begins to happen to this innocent man. In the Jewish culture, spitting was a horrible thing. It was detestable and humiliating. There's only one place where you could spit in the face of a person, and it was a woman to a man. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 9. A man who refuses to continue the seed of, her, of his brother the wife of that brother can come in, take his sandal from him, and spit in his face. <laughs> you can look it up, Deuteronomy 29, uh, 25, 9. That's the only place. Somehow, in the twisted minds of these religious leaders, because remember, they're dominated by the flesh, and the flesh is death, they somehow can find themselves justified using probably some spin-off of this law to spit in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, They blindfold him and strike him with their fists. They're taunting him as an expression of mockery to his divine omniscience. That's what they're after. Matthew 26, uh, 68 says, Prophesy to us, you Christ, mockingly, who is the one who hit you? 
See, they're, they're messing around with him. He, he was omniscient. He knew all things, right? So they're mocking him for that statement that he had made. And of course, Jesus knew exactly who was hitting him. And yet he said nothing. And then after this sinful fun of striking an innocent man and taunting and abusing Jesus ran its course, they, they now turn now turns attention back to the temple police. Look at the end of verse 65. The officers received him with a slap in the face. Now remember, the cohort of Rome went back probably to the barracks. They did not hang around for this. But those temple police were out by the fire hanging out with Peter. The moment they get him back, look what they do. He's already been spit, uh, beaten, slapped, and punched by two different illegal trials, Annas and now Caiaphas and Sanhedrin, the moment the officers get a hold of him, they hit him. Right in public, right in the courtyard, but still under the cover of darkness. They mocked Jesus as a prophet. (laughs) But he was the greatest of prophets. In fact, he himself said in Mark 10, verse 33 and 34, Behold, I'm going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn me to death and hand me over to the Gentiles. They will mock me and spit on me and scourge me and kill me, and three days later I will rise from the dead. There's no greater prophet than Jesus. He prophesied his own humiliation. See, our Lord was not surprised by any of the wickedness of Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. One closing, I want to just draw your attention to one thing. These men had one day of wickedness. They had one day to sit over judgment of Jesus. And it wasn't even a full day. It probably started around midnight and Jesus probably died by three o'clock that next day. They sat over him and judged him and accused him, mocked him, beat him, broke every one of their own laws to put him to death. And maybe they got a half a day or three quarters of a day. But guess where they are now? The Bible says that they're in Hades awaiting judgment. And God will pour out his judgment upon them through the Lord Jesus Christ. The one they mock, the now king of kings, will cast them into final judgment. And though the Sanhedrin rejects Christ on a massive stage, I want you to know, if you're hearing this, you don't have to be on a massive stage to reject Jesus and then be under his final judgment. People do it all the time. Most people believe Jesus is some kind of historical figure. They do not need Jesus to get to God. And in a way, they reject him every day. They reject him being fully God, and they will succumb to the same fate. Apostle John, quoting Jesus and adding his own thoughts, said in John chapter 3, verse 15, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world at that time, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe him has been judged, what? Already. Because he has not believed in the name, the glory, the person of the only begotten son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. That could not be a clear statement of what took place, but this is a statement of all those who try to come to God any way but Jesus Christ alone. And then dropping down to verse 36, he says this, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Brothers and sisters, it is so important that you and I examine our lives. Do we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we believe him to be the Messiah, the sent one of God? Do we believe him to be the son of God, fully and equal in every way, sharing the deity and essence of God? Do we believe that? Because there's no other way he can save you if he's not God. Do you believe that? Look, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
he who believes in me will live even if he dies. See, that's not the case with these men. Yeah, they're gonna live, but they're gonna live in the lake of fire. The Bible here tells us that we'll live with him. And the Bible says that everyone who lives, believes in me, will never die. Do you believe this, Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe this? Look, let me turn this one more way. Christian, are you suffering in some way? Are you suffering in some way? And as I looked at this text and I thought, Lord, this is hard to look at, but there's a reason for it. I began to think, oh, this is what he wants us to know. He wants us to be strengthened by this. There are times I suffer. And so uh, my mind quickly went to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, and this is what it says. For consider him who who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Consider him. Ponder. Think deeply about Jesus and all that he went through. That's why I taught this text. This is just not historical record for you to go back and say, yeah, that was really bad. Let's go have lunch. There's a goal here. The Bible challenges us to consider Jesus who endured such hostility by sinners against himself. He wants you to think about this. And then there's this great clause that's in the end of the verse. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Yes, we know that Jesus suffered this and he had to suffer because this was prophesied of him. This was part of the plan of God to redeem us. This was all part of the wages of sin put on him. And that is a basic, true statement, fundamental of Christianity. But this statement takes us into a Christian life. We should consider what Jesus went through so we don't grow weary. Christian, are you weary? I want to tell you why we get weary. Because our eyes come off of the one who suffered for us. It's so easy, isn't it? It's so easy to be hurt by somebody. It's so easy to feel afflicted and God's done something to you and it isn't fair, why does it happen to me? It's so easy to fall into that very fleshly, self-centered way, isn't it? God wanted us to teach this text so you and I don't grow weary. I hope you learn that today. It challenged me this week. I thought, Lord, there's times I'm weary because I have taken my eyes off your son and all that he went through. And when I look at this, I, I feel invigorated again. I feel encouraged because my Lord went through this for me. And so I can stand now. I can stand firm, humbly, but boldly for God in all situations. Peter said, look, all this happened to Christ as an example for you. He committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile and return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But he kept trusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And there are somebody in this room who's going through something unjust. And today's message is to help you be an example like Jesus. Keep your mouth shut. Obey the Lord. Live for him. And trust your soul to the one who judges righteously. Father, thank you for this reminder. It is very difficult for us as humans to read this. That's our Savior. That's our Lord. He's the one we bend the knee to. And this is happening to him because we caused it. All of our iniquity has fallen upon him. He is forsaken because of us, Lord. And there's a heaviness to this passage that we see as our fault. We're sinners, Lord. And this was the only way. But God, we also see the other side of this coin. You had a redemptive plan. This was your plan to let our sins fall on him so that you could be just. You could propitiate, be satisfied for all of our sins through the finished work of Jesus Christ, you would find joy in that. It would please you to crush your son on our behalf. And only believers can see that. So Lord, we thank you for this lesson today. I pray that it'll cause us to be men and women, boys and girls, who don't grow weary and tired in this race because of what Jesus has done. And Lord, when we find that weariness upon us, may we turn to our Savior and read this story again 
and again and again till we can get up and run for your glory. Lord, thank you for your reminder of this, Lord. Burn it on our hearts, Lord. Burn it in our minds. May we see our Savior going through this for our sake, but joyfully doing it for the joy set before him. He has suffered such hostilities. Lord, thank you for this message. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with me for a closing benediction? May God bless you and keep you and cause your desires to long to assemble together for his glory. May his spirit through his word remind you of his suffering so you will not grow weary. May you trust your soul to the one who judges righteously as an act of worship. Amen.